Jeff, I'm waking up from my winter hibernation. What are you up to over there? I just got back from the doctor. I sprained all of my fingers hitting the snooze button for the last several weeks. Yeah, that's the thing. Is your fingers take a toll when you hit the snooze button 8,000 times. You know, everybody think about that. Everybody wants a new iPhone because it has that stronger glass, but nobody thinks about the toll it's going to take on your joints. Oh, no one thinks about it. Yeah. Don't at me, Tim. (laughs) Don't talk to me. I'm mad. This was our this was our cute little way listener of telling you we've been gone for a while uh, from show bros. Did it work? Thanks for bearing with us through the break. Um, I think it worked. I think they liked it. I think they liked it a lot. Yeah, I think. Uh, we just got crazy busy at the end of the year, and I imagine you did too, so congratulations. You made it into 2019. Give yourself a quick pat on the back, because 2018 was... I mean, in a Jeff, what was... In a, in a Jeff, in a word, Jeff, what was 2018 for you? Jeff. 2018 was Jeff. <laughs> I think you did it. I think you nailed it. 2018 and, was a real Jeff. Yeah, I think I, I, think I got it. Jeff. Got yep. it in one. Yeah. And the thing about 2019 is that it's also Jeff. Is <laughs> I was I was not expecting it when Al Roker announced that on the forecast. I was I was stunned. We're in for stunned. 365 more days of Jeff. You heard it here first. <laughs> I'm Al Roker. <laughs> I don't know. Sequel to any... 500 Days of Summer. No one is looking for. Well, Infinity this is a garbage intro, but here we are. <laughs> We are the show bros. The other voice you're hearing is Jeff. I'm Matt. We're two former film students um, picking at some of the best TV that we can find and telling you a little bit more about it. Um, as we are prone to do, we're changing up the format a little bit again. We kind of got away from more nitty gritty film criticism. And I think we both started having a little bit less fun recording, Jeff. Is that is that true for you too? Or am I speaking for you? No, I think that's absolutely true. I, you know, we did it because we wanted to, to really reach people and to make this show about helping you find really good things. But for me, what I realized is what makes me enjoy these things is actually kind of pulling them apart and and taking a look at the seams of how they're made and why they're made and why I like them. And it wasn't as much fun when, when we didn't get to do that together. So now we're going back under the microscope. And here's the good news for some of our more casual TV watching listeners. Pretty much every week, we're only going to be pulling apart a maximum of three or four minutes of an episode of something. Jeff, what did you bring this week? Let's just get right into it. Yeah, this week I brought uh, a new series from Netflix. It's kind of all over um, the news right now. It's very big. It's very popular. And I crushed it in literally an evening. I forgot to eat. No way. Uh, How many hours is that? It's a six-hour series, so it's not crazy. Um, But I definitely forgot to eat dinner because of how much I loved it. It's called The Innocent Man. It's produced by The Innocence Project and John Grisham. It's based off of his book, uh, and I, I... went ahead and kind of talked about what I brought to it and that moment that I brought to it. So let's have a listen. In the Netflix series, The Innocent Man, based loosely off of John Grisham's novel of the same title, his only nonfiction novel, by the way, there's this moment in episode two, right around the 39 minute mark, that not only perfectly encapsulates the first three episodes telling of the wrongful conviction of Ron Williamson of the murder of Debbie Sue Carter, but also its eventual overturning. It also kind of foreshadows the inevitable engine of the rest of the series, which is that wrongful convictions are not only detrimental to our justice system and to the people in these rural counties, but also to the families of the victims themselves. There's this incredible edit where the county clerk is reading the conviction of Ron Williamson, and it cuts from an empty courtroom to 
Peggy Carter, Debbie's mother, who is simply sipping tea as if she's re-listening to the conviction. And it's this moment of, of pure tension because what we know for a fact, even if we haven't read the book yet, is that Ron Williamson is who the district attorney likes for the murder. But we also know we're early in the series and we know something happens. And at the same time, we've heard all of this conjecture and rumor based around his mental state. And we've heard everything about how everybody in Ada disliked this man. And this moment at first feels like this moment of pure catharsis for Peggy. It feels like this perfect storm of absolute purity And then as you continue down the series, you can revisit this moment where she doesn't get a voice. And you can see that what's actually happening is this bitter moment of self-reflection where she realizes that she too has been taken in by the district attorney and by this evolving engine that must settle crimes even if the crime itself is not solved. It's this perfect tense moment. It's an incredible edit. It takes a lot of guts for a filmmaker to put that in there because it also kind of halts the momentum of the episode with about four minutes to go. We've been hurtling and hurtling towards this moment of ecstasy as Ron Williamson has given the death penalty and we as viewers are led to believe that we are rightfully convicting a murderer, a, a murderer and a rapist of a young girl in a rural county in Oklahoma. And what we actually get is a standstill moment where all we see is the mother of this victim who doesn't get a voice. And it halts everything. And then they have to pick this momentum back up. And it's really also foreshadowing the story of Ron Williamson, who not only fights for his overturned appeal, but then gets out and has false started momentum with his mental illness and ends up dying of cirrhosis of the liver after drinking himself to death, uh, to use John Grisham's terms. And so if you watch The Innocent Man, and I highly recommend it, it's an incredible six-hour series uh, six episodes. It's on Netflix. It recently came out. It's it's very in the news right now. I think this moment is a perfect encapsulation of what these true crime narratives can give us right here, right now in our society, which is a moment of reflection, not just of these heinous crimes and what our justice system can do or can't do, but also the victims left in the wake. Uh, you know, it, that's really what The Innocent Man is to me. It's not the story of wrongful convictions. It's not the story of um, collusion at the highest levels to convict people of poor socioeconomic standards who can't fight back. What it really is to me is the telling of these two murders and everyone else's lives that got ripped apart because of it and because of the inability of our justice system and our governments to, to solve murders correctly when it's not in their best interest. If that's something that interests you, I really recommend The Innocent Man. I think it's for you, and and I hope you watch it. Hey, baby, I hear the blues are calling. Toss now we put in a tidy little musical intro or something. That works for me. Yeah. And now we've listened to it. The reason I wanted to just sort of get right into it is we're changing up the format a little bit. And what we're going to do is we're kind of going to record our own musings on what we're bringing to the show, and then we're going to discuss it. So as you just heard, I kind of set the scene for the series. I set the scene for what it's about. And and then I kind of talked to you about this pivotal moment that I think is really important for us to discuss. Uh, and now we'll now we'll chat about it. Matt, you haven't seen this show, right? 
I, I haven't seen a single second of it. And the thing I want to ask you, because yeah. when I was listening to your audio, I was curious, this is 100% true crime, real documentary footage, or is this a fictionalized version of events? Um, so my the series itself is probably about 90% documentary footage and about 10% wow. dramatic reenactment. And the dramatic reenactments are gorgeously shot, beautiful, haunting uh reenactments of the story and they're done in such a way that they help illuminate some of the turns and twists of the the narrative but the part that i focused on was actually a hundred percent documentary so when you're looking at peggy sitting in her kitchen sipping that tea or coffee whatever she's drinking as you're hearing the county clerk over her that's really her mother and that's really the the courtroom um that's that's really the recording of the courtroom so, so it's real. That's wild. And it's, it's amazing. Because when I was listening to you talk about it, my brain immediately went, because I didn't, I didn't even know this was a docu-series. Yeah. I was coming into it completely cold. My brain was like, oh, so this is kind of a ham-fisted way for a, a filmmaker to write a scene where a mother is, you know, resigned to her fate. Sure. And she's drinking a cup of tea, which is a very common thing for this character, I would assume. Yeah. But knowing it's real makes it a little bit more poignant. I mean, right? I think it's cool when you look at a documentarian and what they do is they're taking, you know, what are disparate things, a shot of a woman drinking tea and then the sound of this court verdict, and finding a thematic tie-in between them. And documentarians do some really cool stuff like that. And when it's done well, it can be so poignant. And it can, like, this just, it hit me in the gut hearing what you were describing in that. Like, man, someone so resigned to this fate is ridiculous. And believing their kid could do something so terrible. I mean... Give me what else you're thinking about, it, man. It's pretty incredible. And I think what's amazing to me when you look at the difference between a dramatized series and a documentary series is a dramatized series, this was written out and planned and scripted and storyboarded. Somebody in the edit room found this like throwaway moment of this woman taking a sip of tea. It's it's She's not listening to it, I don't think. I don't think it was planned that way. I think what happened was they were planning on inserting the the county clerk reading this and didn't know what to put over it. And you can kind of feel it in the lead up to it. You can kind of feel it because they're showing the courtroom, they're showing the empty seats and they, they do these really beautiful tracking shots of, of all of this architecture around Ada in the dark, kind of moody and, you know, right up my alley. But then they cut to this woman just drinking tea without a word, without a reason, without anything. And then it has to pick the momentum back up. And you know that that happened late in the process you can just feel that it was it was something that they stumbled upon and that's what i think is so cool about documentary versus drama is when you stumble upon those moments they almost become even more poignant right it all of a sudden you're like playing you're playing with things that shouldn't go together and you're you're finding things that are only happening because you're that enmeshed in the story that you can make the connection yeah, and that's that's part of the challenge of being a documentary filmmaker, from what I understand at least, is there are times when all you have is an audio clip. Right. Or, you know, I think let's talk about maybe the ultimate example a lot of people know about, like a Ken Burns style documentary or a historical a historical film. You know, all he has is words on the page and pictures. And sometimes the pictures are of the subjects that are talking in these Civil War letters. Sometimes they're not. They're yeah. just creating the connections to give us as an audience you know, information about how to feel like how different would it have been if the picture of the mother had been like sobbing 
Or I think a lot about how another Netflix true crime program, Making a Murderer, does a lot of shots of the, the suspect's mother like looking through files and piles and piles and boxes of right. the work she's done. Like That's a very different thing than taking your time on a shot of someone drinking tea and making that connection. Mm-hmm. Like that, that was probably a lucky find. I think you're right. Or yeah. it was a very intentional shot. Like they were like, okay, Greg, or like, okay, Susan, I need five seconds to get us from courtroom sound to something new and right. I just need you to find something quiet to do it with so if our audience can focus on the words exactly <laughs> like that's possible too I haven't seen it but it sounds like what you're talking about it was just serendipity at play which is really cool yeah Ugh, I just can't do the true crime though I mean that sounds like a cool moment and true crime sometimes gets my goat yeah but I don't know man like how else does this one operate like is are there twists are there turns does John Grisham turn out to be <gasps> the real culprit John Grisham turns out to be Spider-Man. Uh, and no! Yeah, no. yeah, and he jumps into the Spider-Verse. It's all the first five minutes of Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Here's into the, the Spider-Verse 2, an innocent spider here's is, the, is what yeah. I would kind of come up with. Here's the thing about this six-episode arc and why it's actually, I think, really good for people who are kind of, kind of into true crime, kind of not. They deal with the murder and the convictions within the first two episodes, right? Like, we're at episode two, yeah. and... Ron Williamson is being convicted and given the death penalty. That's the first third gotcha. of the show. The rest of the show, so the bulk of the show is about how he is innocent. That conviction is overturned. He's the innocent man. It's kind of a spoiler, but it's not really a spoiler. I mean, it's in the title. And it's we in the can, title. We can live with that. So I'm just going to let you know. But really what the whole show is about is about how injustice can be committed. And so it really becomes far more of this kind of plotting slow political drama about how that can happen uh see where where you lost me was plotting yep. slow political drama i feel you, you knew you were gonna lose me I, there. you knew me you knew i was you're gonna lose me there i knew the second i started watching this show before i knew it would become that that this wasn't for you in fairness i i know you pretty well <laughs> yeah. and we were texting yeah. while this was happening and and i believe i said i'm watching this it's not for you yeah that was those were exact words yeah but I, for, for me, this show was really great. It is something that you can watch pretty quickly. Feel free to eat dinner and take a break uh, if you want, whatever. You but need to eat dinner. Don't listen to Jeff. Eat your dinner, please. Don't forget to eat dessert, guys. Life is short and every day is a new Jeff. But <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I really love this show for what it was. I am a big fan of not all true crime dramas, but I do think that Definitely between the two of us, I dabble in this genre a lot more than you. I'm definitely the part of show bros that's that's down for this stuff. Uh, and I thought it was pretty successful. So if you're into true crime, if any of this sounds cool, give it a listen. Um, if, if you're watching a documentary or anything like that, this is kind of a cool lesson from Jeff on try and connect those dots when our visual presentation, what's going on in the shot, is different than what we're hearing. Like Try and see what the filmmakers are trying to communicate there because that can be where a lot of the meat of like really understanding their message comes from. I just love that. Like that's a cool thing that would get me to watch something out of my lane. Yeah. The filmmakers are very good at making those connections. And if you're not careful, you'll just feel it and not necessarily recognize what they're doing, which maybe which is what you're looking for anyways. Um, But now Jeff will come to my, my fun clip. Uh, We are, I want to say up front because I don't say it in my clip. This is the end of the first season of Amazon studios, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. You can find it on prime video. 
if you're gonna watch this or you're half the way through, you're probably gonna have a spoiler or two in here. But otherwise, take it away, past Matt. Hey baby, I hear the blues are calling. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is a show that wears many hats. It can swing from being a slapstick comedy and then quickly veer into introspective drama within the course of a single sequence. The ways in which the filmmakers navigate these tonal changes deserve some more thought. And for me, no scene better demonstrates their ability than the final sequence of season one and episode eight. If you want to follow along, start at 53 minutes in and get a better look at what they're doing. Otherwise, I'll cover all the essentials. Let's set the scene. It's the late 1950s in New York. We're following a gal named Mitch Maisel as she navigates her new life as a single parent after her husband chose to run away with his secretary. Chance encounters have led Midge to pursue getting her own job and also a secret career in stand-up comedy. Midge is aided in this pursuit by a disillusioned cafe employee named Susie, who is aiming to be Midge's manager in comedy. Susie has a sharp eye for talent and is championing Midge through this process. Quick aside, Susie is played by Mad TV and Family Guy alumnus Alex Borstein, and she puts on one of the best TV performances I think I've seen. The first shot I love in this scene is one of Susie and Midge standing together right off stage. For Midge, this is a huge moment. This is maybe the most important moment of her young stand-up career so far. Pretty much the last chance she'll get to have another shot at even having a career in stand-up. There's a really nice detail in the background of this shot of Susie and Midge just off stage. If you look closely at the extras in the background, you'll find that most of them are women. I think this is a nice thematic callback. Throughout the whole first season, Midge has been assembling, whether it's intentional or unintentional, a nice group of female friends and supporters. And even now, the show is giving her the support by having a group of women in the background. Then we get a really hard contrast of a shot of Midge's absentee husband, Joel. He's alone in the back of the club. And in the background of his shot, we have a happy couple watching the show. As if the theme of Joel's regret for leaving his family and his partner Midge behind can be made realized right in the background. While Midge starts her act on the stage, we get a really long take of Susie crossing backwards through the crowd to set up by the entrance of this cafe. The filmmakers take their time with this shot, letting us as an audience understand what Midge is saying on stage and also giving us time to figure out where Susie is going before finally pulling the focus back to show us that Joel is also in the back of the crowd. This is the moment where things got fascinating for me. Having Joel and Susie share a frame informs us as an audience that at some point they're going to be interacting, but the filmmakers have a big roadblock to getting these two characters to speak. Midge is on a stage, being amplified in a comedy club delivering a routine. How are they gracefully going to find a way to shift our focus away from all of that volume to this really small conversation? Presumptively, it's going to happen in the back of the club. Midge is starting to get warmed up on the stage. And the thing is, she is eviscerating her husband verbally. She's not aware he's in attendance, though. Michael Zegan, who plays Joel, does an awesome job expressing the obvious emotional roller coaster this moment is for his character. He's only just found out that Midge is trying to be a stand-up comedian, which was a dream of his. And he's wounded by what he's hearing as she insults him, his character, and his choices in front of a bunch of strangers. But he's also in awe of how well Midge works as a comedian. He's drunk, and he's angry, and as an only child of privilege, he feels like he's the victim. 
we get another long take now of Joel crossing the back of the room. And then we get an echo of that focus change from earlier that brings us from Joel in the background to Susie in the foreground. It's subtle. Filmmakers take Midge's audio and start adding some reverb to it and bring its volume down a little bit, more accurately representing Joel and Susie's point of view. After Midge delivers her next punchline, her audio becomes intentionally muffled, and Joel speaks his first line. This indicates a tonal shift for us from what's going on on the stage. Alex Borstein and Michael Zegan keep their tones hushed but aggressive, the kind of way you speak when you don't want to be heard in a crowd, but you still want to make a point. While Midge's takedown of Joel on stage is brutal, Susie's takedown of Joel in the scene that follows is vicious seething. I can't do it justice, so instead we'll listen to a very short clip from the show. I'm happy that you ruined my life. Yeah, I didn't fuck my secretary. That was you. You don't know anything about me. Oh, buddy. I know so much more than you think. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You are ripped right out of a bullshit mail catalog. King of the mansion. Spoiled brat. Who do you go home to? Huh? What do you know about having a family? Nothing. And thank God, because if I had to go home to you, I'd set the house on fire. Fuck you. Oh, fuck you, Salminio. Get the hell away from me. After that conversation is over, we bounce back to the stage. And Midge is sparring with the heckler to help us move away from that confrontation and back towards something new. Throughout this scene, we see long takes with moving cameras and changes in not only visual focus, but audio focus to help us move smoothly between Midge on the stage and Susie and Joel observing from the back. Throughout the course of this sequence, the filmmakers get to tell us everything we need to know about the first season. It's a really nice tidy up, it's visually stunning, and I think it's one of the most perfect season endings I've seen. Hey baby, I hear the blues are calling, try salad and scrambled eggs, they're calling again. Alright Jeff, we just heard me talk for a long time. And it was, how'd I do? It was so good, man. I have seen this show. Uh, I've seen all of this show, are you caught up? I'm not caught up, I'm on season two, we've been, we've been taking our time with season two, it's a sipper for us. That's fair. This, uh, two years in a row is my favorite show of the year. So I'm really glad that you brought it and I didn't. Thank you for that. And <laughs> I I love this show, but what I love about what you did is you brought us into this one kind of perfect shot and then you talked about the sound. Uh, and I think what's yeah, so right? cool about Mrs. Maisel uh, and what the Paladinos, Amy and Daniel, the the writer, creator, and director do is they use sound really beautifully in the series to take you through these conversations happening in space. And I loved how you were able to root us there. I didn't rewatch this clip to record because I didn't have to. And I think what's so cool about how they take the sound from stage and start to muffle it through the jokes is so beautiful and keeps you so rooted in the space that they can track that camera around so beautifully. And I, I think that what is so successful about this show is the way that it inhabits that era and allows us to feel what these women feel in being trapped in these relationships and what these men feel in in the changing world around them. So I love this moment of the show, but I'm really curious. There are a couple of other moments uh, that do a very similar thing that don't involve Joel. Why was this moment so cool for you? Like, was there something there in that tension? Sure. Sure. 
I think what stood out to me in this moment is kind of like what I mentioned in the clip. I just didn't know how they were going to solve the problem of being in a loud comedy club, but finding some way to smoothly get us to a small conversation in that environment. Yeah. Like when I saw them tracking Susie back, I was like, okay, they're going to put Susie outside of the club smoking a cigarette because her job is done here. Like that classic mentor shot of like, I get to have a cigarette and like enjoy. And then she would meet Joel out there smoking a cigarette. I was like, okay, cool. That's a tidy way to solve that problem. But they keep it all in the environment. And I think another thing is if, if Susie and Joel would not have ended up outside, my expectation was for Joel to cause a scene in the club. Right. Because he's such a selfish character, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a trope we get to know throughout the first season. So to have my expectations like not met twice and instead met in this crazy, elegant, really technical way was delightful. Like I, I had to pick that. And yeah. the thing is, I mean, it, at the risk of sounding reductive, Amy Sherman's Paladino's work at least on Gilmore Girls, is known for being dialogue-centric, mm-hmm. fast, mm-hmm. quippy. It's known for that. And this scene certainly has a lot of that. But it's also got miles of heart. And again, I think just Alex Borstein's performance in this scene is worth the price of admission for the whole show. I mean, I'm with you. I think this was definitely the best thing I watched last year. There's no question in my mind about that. Um, I also thought it'd be kind of fun for me to bring this because I'm definitely not like as resonant a viewer as you are, this is about Jewish families on the East coast, which is something I have like zero touchstones for. Yeah. And you have a bunch of touchstones for it. So I just wanted to hear how, like if I misread anything, like if culturally there was something different going on or what was going on in your head when it was going on too, because I was pretty sure we would pick up on different things when we watched it too. That's my long answer on why I picked this one. Yeah. I, you know, if we were going to talk about Jewish family life and, and how this, series and and really both seasons do it beautifully kind of encapsulate what it is like to live in a jewish family both in the stories i've heard my parents tell about growing up in those decades but also even now what it feels like and how much it resonated with me this scene didn't necessarily pick it but what this scene did for me is kind of bucked my expectations in a different way and what i mean by that is uh I think between the two of us, it's safe to say I'm probably the more avid Gilmore Girls watching partner. <laughs> that is a super safe <laughs> assumption. Yeah. yeah. Um, Amy Sherman Palladino and Daniel Palladino are very well known for very dialogue heavy moments, but they're also very well known for this weird shot where two characters that are kind of fighting over another character just quietly watch them do something. It happens in Gilmore Girls all the damn time it drives me nuts so this is like an artist callback like it's not just like a season callback or a shot to shot callback it's like a hey we do this all the time callback i'm gonna shoot my shot here and say that this is actually the evolution of their artistry in moving from so like they're bringing it up yeah and moving from this moment where they had two characters fighting over another and they thought it was adequate enough to put them in frame but silhouetted so we could see who they were fighting over doing what they did best which is something that uh, Rory's mother, Lorelai, and whatever boyfriend of the month Rory is dating do all the time while Rory does something at school. Like, it's it's a thing. Go watch Gilmore Girls. It happens enough that I don't have to give you an episode reference. <laughs> and they've moved it and they've changed it to understanding that that's not enough for us. We want to know what these characters would say to each other. And these characters have enough room to grow that you get Alex Borstein's performance you get Joel yeah. fighting back a little bit. And I, for me, 
kind of seeing that evolution bucked my expectations from somebody who's kind of watched their careers, but also as someone who didn't expect it for the same reasons you did. But it also fits really nicely because neither of these characters would budge, right? Neither of these characters would go smoke a cigarette during her set for one reason or another. One of them's being torn apart during the set and is a and is a comedy fan and an avid kind of wannabe comic himself. So he would stay because she's killing it. The other is her manager. Yeah. She wouldn't go outside. She's working. So you have this yeah. moment where nobody's going to leave. Nobody's going to stop talking. And how do you settle that? And that, to me, was the beauty of it, is they set these characters up to have to solve their own problem in a cool way that they've never really been comfortable doing before. And I like that. Sure. Yeah, no, had I known the lineage there, it would have made this particular sequence even better, definitely, to see the evolution of a technique they're, like, very good at, and they're just kind of moving on top of it. Yeah. Um, I'd be curious. It was really hard not to talk about the entire episode, yeah. but our new direction is, like, let's make it short and easy. Thing. So, whole episode's worth watching. The whole season's worth watching. If you're a fan of comedy, if you're a fan of, you know, strong, independent female characters, if you're a fan of male characters trying to figure out, you know, what masculinity is i think this is a killer show for it and if you're a film fan you gotta watch it because they're constantly making things harder than they need to for themselves yes constantly all the time and it's it's such a delight to see them solve those problems the the word elegant keeps coming up i'm gonna use it again very elegantly so that was my that was my little taste this week i loved it uh shout out to tony shalhoub no rhyme no reason Shalhoub it up, everybody. We're probably going to cut this. We're yeah. going to probably cut this, Jeff. Is Tony Shalhoub Jewish? Because I don't know if he is. Do you want me to Google it for you? I believe he is. I'm pretty sure Tony Shalhoub is Jewish. <laughs> Interesting your, story for I you. To... I've met Tony okay. Shalhoub. I met Tony Shalhoub on a family no vacation way. when I was like eight or nine. No way. No Elise Gellerman, get at story. me. Tell me this story. My family vacationed on the East Coast because that's where my parents were from. And uh, we were on Martha's Vineyard one summer, and they have this, like, very elaborate Fourth of July festival, and it was a couple years after Big Night had come out, and Tony Shalhoub actually owns a house on the vineyard, and we saw him at the fair, and my mom freaked out, and I was eight and didn't know who he was, but then when I got really... uh, really into monk that's all my mom would talk about is how i was into monk because one time i met tony shalhoub so i don't really remember (laughs) meeting him but i know i met him because it's a it's like a family story at this point what a journey yeah what a life lived there you go to have met and been in the vicinity of tony shalhoub dear tony gosh thank you for the memories (laughs) that'd be your quote in his yearbook if you signed it (laughs) Well, folks, that was us for the week. Jeff, do you have any idea about what you're going to be talking about next time we meet up for Showbros? You know, I'm not quite sure. I I have a couple of things in mind. I really want to stretch this format a little bit. I'm thinking, Matt, sure. of finding the yeah. worst reality television I can and trying to just give you, like, this is why reality TV can be fun sometimes. Okay, you're going hard mode. So for, I'm, for I'm, going, I'm going into the paint. I want to stretch myself. I want to try it. It's also very possible that I won't do any of those things and you will end up with a really cool (laughs) cut of uh, Kevin's chili from the office. (laughs) Okay. What about Uh, you? I'll be going with, 
I'm going with the season two ending of Stranger Things for my next <laughs> more granular view. I'm picking the snowball dance. I'm going to try and pick a tight 15 seconds of it. Um, so it sounds like if you want to catch up with what Jeff's going to be talking about, watch every reality TV show made from after 1997 to today. And for me, you just got to have watched Stranger Things. So <laughs> I think my barrier to entry is maybe a little bit more easy, but definitely spookier. February is going to be a spooky month. If you have a second, giving us a review on iTunes helps us out tremendously. Um, if you have any comments about the show, we have a Twitter account, Showbros Podcast. We also have an email, Jeff, which is what? Showbrospodcast at gmail.com. Big ups to the homie Drake Stafford for playing us in and out of every episode with their song cassettes, courtesy of the Free Music Archive. Ladies and gentlemen, the marvelous Mr. Fearberg. Hey, baby, I hear the blues are calling to salad and scrambled. <laughs> and we fade out because that's audio. Mm-hmm.